0: Happy Constitution Day. Welcome to the Cato Institute for our 18th annual Constitution Day Symposium. My name's Ilya Shapiro, and I'm the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and after 11 years as editor, the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, the 18th volume of which you have in your hands, at least those of you who are here in person. Thanks to the George M. Yeager Family Foundation, whose generosity allows us to hold this symposium and publish this journal. And a special welcome to Justice Miroslav Granat, formerly of the Polish Constitutional Court. Is he here? I wasn't able to be. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Justice. Uh, those of you watching online are, of course, uh, welcome as well, and you'll be able to download all of the articles in this volume soon enough, although, alas, not the snazzy cover. You're going to have to come here by the end of the day or buy it uh, if you want that. Uh, wherever you're watching this and whoever you are, you're welcome to tweet at me uh, or at Cato using hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Today is the day when we review the Supreme Court term just passed and preview the next one finishing up with the annual B. Kenneth Simon lecture, which this year will be given by Judge Thomas Hardiman of the US Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. After that, we'll have a grand reception on the Ken and Freda Levy roof garden, which is actually where I was married six years ago. We hold this event on September 17th, because on this day, 232 years ago, the framers completed the Constitution in Philadelphia and sent it to the states for ratification. Liberty, through limited government, animated the Declaration of Independence, while the Constitution set out to make a more perfect union that would better secure and protect liberty. Later, we saw what's called the completion of the Constitution in the second founding of the post-Civil War Amendments, though that was largely thwarted by a Supreme Court unwilling to defend individual rights against state violation. Then, after a rebirth of economic liberty in the Lochner era, we had a constitutional reworking without amendment during the New Deal, the critique of that inversion has animated our center. To give an overview of the conference, let me introduce the man largely responsible for putting it together and editing the review that you have in your hands, Trevor Burris. Trevor is a research fellow in the Levy Center and the editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also the editor of two books, A Conspiracy Against Obamacare and Deep Commitments, The Past, Present, and the Future of Religious Liberty. And he co-hosts Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast that covers libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. Trevor first came to Cato as an intern right after graduating from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law nine years ago, and we've been stuck with him ever since. I'll now turn the program over to him, but we'll return at the end of the day to introduce Judge Hardiman. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Ilya. As he pointed out, uh, nine years ago when I was an intern I never thought I would be Editor-in-Chief of the Supreme Court Review. Actually, i wanted to work at Cato since I was 15, uh, in any capacity, janitorial. Uh, you can name it otherwise. Uh, so it's a real honor to be up here, uh, fourth in a line, uh, beginning with James L. Swanson, going through Mark Muller, Ilya, and now me. So in my first one introducing, I figured I had to start with a thing. Uh, uh, and my thing is going to be constitutional trivia. <laughs> so. Our constitutional trivia of, t- of this year, of today, is one of my favorite facts about the Constitution on the morning of September 17, 1787. Now, this is an August group of people who know a lot about the Constitution. But here's a really good trivia question. Who wrote the Constitution in terms of whose penmanship is actually on that document? Does anyone know? I will buy you a free drink at the reception afterwards. Yes, sir. Nope, nope. It was a man named Jacob Shalas, who was the engrosser for the Pennsylvania state legislator. He apparently got A's in penmanship all through school, and so his job was to write out the Constitution. Funny thing is, if you look at the actual Constitution, if you go down the road to the National Archives, there are a bunch of errors in it. Uh, there's little carrots that put in thes. Uh, there's a part of the impeachment clause where he just forgot to put an is tried before the Senate. So it's a carrot in there. And on the, morning, on the morning of September 17, 1787, when they were reviewing the text against what they had given him to make sure it was accurate, George Washington was looking at the text and in the clause about the House of Representatives, and it was one per 40,000, one representative per 40,000 until the census, George Washington said the only substantive thing that he actually contributed in the convention, which he kept silent the whole time, he looked at it and he said, you know, I really think that this should be closer to the people, uh, that we should probably have representation a little closer to the people. And they just said, OK, and they sh- rubbed it out. They rubbed out the 40, and they changed it to a 30. And if you look at the Constitution to this day, it's clearly a rubbed out 40 change into a 30. Uh, and I advise you, and you can download high res images on your phone from the National Archives and, and see those images. It's my constitutional fact of this year. So as Ellie said, we publish a review every year in the summer between when the Supreme Court term ends and the next one begins, which is in about two weeks. And it would be difficult to do it faster. We ask our authors to write articles, often in about five weeks, uh, after the late decisions in late June. Uh, And we have a quick turnaround, which of course I would not be able to do uh, without help. And I I need to, of course, thank Ilya and Roger Pilon uh, for actually trusting in me, and then my co-editors, Clark Neely, William Yateman, Walter Olson, for helping me on the top line edits. Legal Associates Dennis Garcia, Michael Collins, James Knight, uh, and Nathan Harvey for helping with the endlessly, uh, endlessly thankless but essential task of site checking and proofreading. Uh, Christian Townsend and Kristen Toms were legal interns this summer, and I really want to thank Sam Spiegelman, who stepped in to take the reins on the administrative side uh, and helped keep the, keep the process going and had an exceptional attention to detail. As, as Ilya mentioned, I want to thank the generosity of the George M. Yeager Foundation, which supports the re- review in this symposium. I want to thank Linda Asu and the conference staff, uh, all the stuff that's going on behind me that I don't have to pay attention to but will nevertheless go smoothly is due to them and Brandy Dunn and the marketing staff for all they do. The Supreme Court review was conceived to help explain a Madisonian vision of the Constitution in which a government in, of enumerated and limited powers secures individual liberty. And the Constitution, while it was written in private, was debated in public in one of the more amazing acts of popular democratic governance that has ever occurred. And we hope that this symposium and the review can help cont- continue that tradition of public debate amongst educated laymen about the virtues of the Constitution, how it should be read, how it should be interpreted. A few high scooping notes. Just as I said, there's also the restrooms are on up the spiral staircase and down the spiral staircase. Another one about silencing your cell phones would be a good uh, constant <laughs> note. Um, uh, we run a tight ship around here. So panels will begin when they say they begin, especially the 1 o'clock panel after lunch. And then the 2.15 transition will just begin right into the next panel. Uh, and uh, we will just go into the next first panel here. So Supreme Court heard major cases in three constitutional amendments this year. Two of them often don't get much attention. Uh, the Eighth Amendment Excessive Fines Clause it uh, doesn't get a lot of attention, partially because it has not yet, but it wasn't yet incorporated. Uh, we have the double jeopardy clause and exceptions, possibly to the double jeopardy clause of the Sixth Amendment, uh, which often didn't get attention except by scholars grumbling about the dual sovereignty exception to the double jeopardy clause. Uh, and finally, one that does get a little bit more attention is the establishment clause. Uh, And those are the three cases that we will be discussing today. I will introduce the speakers uh, before they speak. So our first up is going to be Brienne Garrod, who is Chief Counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Previously, she was a counsel at O'Melveny and Myers in the Supreme Court appellate practice. Before joining the firm, she was an attorney advisor at the OLC in the Department of Justice. She clerked for Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court, the Honorable Robert A. Katzman on the Second Circuit, and the Honorable Jed S. Rakoff on the District Court for the Southern District of New York. It's a good, it's a good lineup. <laughs> she is a graduate of Yale Law School. Please welcome Brianne. <clears throat>
2: So I want to start by thanking Cato for hosting this terrific celebration of our Constitution each year and for inviting me to participate in this morning's panel on old amendments and new developments. I'm actually going to talk about two amendments this morning, the 8th and the 14th, and what is, I think, a really important new development involving these old amendments that took place um, just last term. In a case called Timms v. Indiana, the Supreme Court finally held. 150 years after the 14th Amendment was ratified, that the 14th Amendment makes the 8th Amendment's excessive fines clause applicable to the states. Now, when you think about the 8th Amendment, you probably think about its prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. But it does other things as well, um, including um, providing that excessive bail shall not be required, and importantly, for the purposes of this discussion, that excessive fines shall not be imposed. And up until last year, states did not need to comply with that prohibition on excessive fines being imposed. Now, if it seems surprising to you that it took us this long to get to this development. You're not alone. Um, at the argument in the case last year, Justice Neil Gorsuch seemed to find it unbelievable that the issue the court was considering hadn't already been decided. Um, this is what he said, among many other things. Here we are in 2018, still litigating incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Really? Come on. Justice Brett Kavanaugh made a similar observation. He asked, isn't it just too late in the day to argue that any of the Bill of Rights is not incorporated? So I want to start with a little background about how we got to where we were as of 2018. And then I'll talk about what the court decided and why I think it's so important. So the excessive fines clause, along with the rest of the Eighth Amendment, came essentially verbatim from the English Bill of Rights of 1689. Like so many of our constitutional safeguards, um, the clause was rooted in a series of notorious government abuses in England that spurred the entrenchment of countervailing legal rules. Um, Consistent with its origin and with its purpose, the clause limits the government's power to extract payments, whether in cash or in kind, as punishment for an offense. And so its focus is essentially on curbing the potential for governmental abuse of its prosecutorial power. Now, throughout the antebellum period of American history, the Excessive Fines Clause, like the rest of the Bill of Rights, was generally understood as curbing abuse only by the federal government. And that had consequences. And those consequences were particularly acute in the aftermath of the Civil War, when Southern states started putting in place black codes in order to reinstitutionalize slavery in a different guise. Um, One observer at the time put it, the South is determined to have slavery, the thing, if not the name. And so the centerpiece of these codes was an attempt to stabilize the black workforce and limit its economic options apart from plantation labor. Among other things, virtually all the former Confederate states enacted sweeping vagrancy and labor contract laws that required the newly freed men to be privately employed under terms supervised by the state. And failure to comply with these contractual obligations was a crime and like other violations of the Black Code, was punished with harsh penalties that included fines, imprisonment, lashings, forced labor, and forfeiture of property. Now, what's particularly notable here is the extent to which the Southern governments used outlandish fines as a tool of oppression. The infliction of these unpayable fines supplied the pretext under which slavery conditions were reinstituted. Freemen convicted of vagrancy were auctioned off at contract laborers to white employers who paid their fines. And so it quickly became clear to Congress that the southern states could not be trusted to respect the fundamental rights of their own citizens. Congress first responded through legislation, but Congress ultimately deemed those legislative remedies insufficient, in part because doubts were raised about the federal government's constitutional authority to impose such remedial measures. So in order to provide a constitutional basis for the protection of fundamental rights in the South, Congress crafted the 14th Amendment to fundamentally transform our federal system. And the debates in Congress over this amendment confirmed that its first section, in particular the privileges and immunities clause, was understood as securing against state encroachment the individual liberties enumerated in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, that understanding wasn't shared by a majority of justices on the Supreme Court. So called upon to interpret the privileges or immunities clause in the now infamous slaughterhouse cases, those justices just cast aside the widely understood public meaning of the clause. As one dissenting justice put it, they reduced it to a vain and idle enactment, which accomplished nothing, and most unnecessarily excited the Congress and the people on its passage. Fortunately, this wasn't the end of the story, at least in terms of incorporation. Later in the 19th century, the court began to consider whether the 14th Amendment's due process clause prohibited the states from infringing the rights set out in the Bill of Rights. And so using a variety of formulation to describe what rights met that standard, the court selectively incorporated individual protections from the Bill of Rights into the Due Process Clause, one at a time in a series of cases decided through the 1960s. By 2018, the court had incorporated nearly all of the protections in the Bill of Rights. But among the handful remaining to Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Kavanaugh, and many other people's surprise was the Eighth Amendment's safeguard against excessive fines. So that brings me to Tim's, to the case the court decided last term. Um, And let me give you a little context for how the case got to the court. Um, Tyson, Tim's journey to the court began with a story that has sadly become all too familiar. Um, Tim's became addicted to an opioid medication prescribed to him for a painful physical condition. Once his prescription ran out, he began buying um, his pills illegally. And that eventually led to heroin. Um, The death of his father around the same time left him with an inheritance, and he used about $42,000 to buy a Land Rover SUV. He squandered the rest of the money on his addiction, and when the money ran out, he began selling heroin as a way to fund his habit. Um, A confidential informant um, brought him to the attention of Indiana law enforcement, um, and he was ultimately um, arrested um, for some controlled purchases of heroin. Now, these weren't large-scale transactions. Each sale was for two grams of heroin, His biggest haul from them was about $225. Um, He pled guilty to a count of dealing in controlled substances and a related count of uh, conspiracy. He was sentenced to one year of home detention, followed by five years of probation, including mandatory participation in an addiction treatment program. This all was not enough for Indiana, however. Um, It set its sights on that pricey SUV he bought with his father's inheritance. Um, Before his criminal prosecution was even resolved, the state filed a civil forfeiture action seeking to obtain ownership of Tim's vehicle based on his alleged use of the vehicle to transport heroin. Now, initially, the Indiana courts were not buying this. Um, The Indiana Superior Court judge rebuffed the state's overreaching, so did the Indiana Court of Appeals. But in the Indiana Supreme Court, the government found a more hospitable audience. And the court reversed, not because it disagreed that the forfeiture, forfeiture was excessive, Instead, the court declared that states like Indiana are not bound by the Excessive Fines Clause at all. And so it was then that Tim's attorneys from the Institute for Justice petitioned the Supreme Court to answer the following question, whether the Eighth Amendment's Excessive Fines Clause is incorporated against the states under the 14th Amendment. And so the timing of this was auspicious. The sur petition offered not only a chance to close a gap in the Supreme Court's incorporation precedents, but also an opportunity to advance the cause of placing appropriate constitutional limits on the use of civil forfeiture. Over the preceding years, the widespread abuse of civil forfeiture had blossomed into public view, um, partly as a result of in-depth investigative reporting. And importantly, this was an issue on which left-leaning social justice organizations found common cause with right-leaning property rights advocates. Um, you can even see the cross-ideological support that Tim's case inspired and the petitions that were filed um, supporting the court taking the case. Um, My organization, the Constitutional Accountability Center, filed, as did the Southern Poverty Law Center, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the US Chamber of Commerce, and of course, Cato. So this cross-ideological support manifested itself in the court's opinion as well. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's opinion for the court was joined by every justice um, except for Justice Thomas, and he concurred in the judgment. Um, Justice Gorsuch also wrote a short concurrence. So writing for the court, Justice Ginsburg held first that the excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states under the 14th Amendment's due process clause, concluding that the prohibition against excessive fines is both fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty and deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Justice Thomas concurred in the judgment only because he would have relied on the privileges or immunities clause, not the due process clause, to conclude that the prohibition is incorporated against the states. And Justice Gorsuch penned a one paragraph concurring opinion, noting that, As an original matter, the appropriate vehicle for incorporation may well be the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause, but concluding that it was unnecessary to decide that in Tim's case. So the outcome in Tim's case was, in my view, well overdue. And so the question then is just how significant was the court's decision? Now, during oral argument, Tim's counsel sought to reassure the justices, Your Honors, he said this case is about constitutional housekeeping. Um, Given the court's prior suggestions that freedom from excessive fines is incorporated against the states, he said, all that remains to do is to expressly so hold. And on a practical level, it's certainly easy to see why one could dismiss this as a mere case of constitutional housekeeping. Besides Indiana, only three other states had declined to enforce the Eighth Amendment's uh, Excessive Fines Clause um, to state action. And all 50 states had their own constitutional provisions prohibiting the imposition of excessive fines. And many of those states interpret their own provisions um, to be identical to the Eighth Amendment. But notwithstanding all of that, I think downplaying the significance of TIMS would be a mistake. While it's true that only a few states had actually declined to enforce the Excessive Fines Clause in their courts, the vast majority of states hadn't weighed in at all. And so by settling the matter, TIMS prevents a wider block of states from withholding this fundamental protection from their residents and saves innumerable future plaintiffs from wasting time and lawyers' fees litigating the issue. Moreover, because the Eighth Amendment now governs punitive fines across the country, plaintiffs need not rely on the excessive fine protections of individual state constitutions with their potential variations in scope. And this should encourage the development of more uniform standards for measuring excessiveness in the state and federal courts. Um, reducing that local variation should make it easier for attorneys elsewhere, everywhere, to research and to rely on cases from other jurisdictions and advocating for their clients. And it should make it simpler for organizations like the Institute for Justice to conduct strategic nationwide efforts to secure excessive fines precedent protecting individual rights. In addition, even in states that have construed their own excessive fines protections as being co-extensive with the Eighth Amendment, state court judges will have to increasingly reckon with the federal version itself, including the possibility of Supreme Court review of their decisions. And so that prospect could help curb state court judges, some of whom are elected on -on tough-on-crime platforms, from reflexively siding with law enforcement in the inevitably subjective task of appraising a fine's excessiveness. Together, the changes brought about by TIMS hold out the prospect that our state and federal courts will flesh out more robust rules capable of restraining the worst excesses of overbearing financial sanctions. And such rules could help curb not just unfair judicial forfeitures, but the full range of exploitive fines and fees that have undergone a dramatic increase in the last few decades, as local governments have turned to criminal justice debt as funding sources. So I want to conclude with just three final thoughts. First, it's no omission, I think, that this this, uh, is finally being corrected now. As I touched on earlier, the force behind the Supreme Court's belated action was an emerging broad-based effort to combat the increasingly rapacious use of civil forfeiture and other fines and fees by state and local governments. Recent decades have seen the number and size of asset forfeiture skyrocket, both at the federal and state level. Starting in the 1970s and continuing through the 1980s, the government came to believe that asset forfeiture was a powerful tool in its effort to combat drug trafficking. And, and as one of the amicus briefs followed in Tim's by the Drug Policy Alliance explained, the idea was that forfeiture could be used to confront the high echelon criminal elements who are isolated from the distribution of drugs, but who direct control and profit from the drug traffic. Over time, Congress significantly broadened the categories of assets state and federal officers could seize, and predictably, it also expanded the use of forfeiture beyond drug trafficking to many other crimes. Perhaps the most fateful development, indeed, was, the effort to, was that in an effort to incentivize enforcement agencies, Congress began to permit the agencies to retain forfeited assets, while also authorizing the attorney general to transfer to state or local law enforcement agencies a share of forfeiture proceeds. Um, that program allowed state and local law enforcement to receive up to 80% of the proceeds from forfeiture. And so this incentive structure um, particularly triggered the danger always lurking in the government's power to levy fines. Instead of costing a state money, fines become a source of revenue. And that means that more than a desire to stop crime was now on the table, the state stood to benefit financially from successful forfeitures. The federal experiment inspired many states to enact their own forfeiture statutes, which likewise have permitted law enforcement to retain some or all of the assets seized. Unsurprisingly, this regime in which police can seize property with limited judicial oversight and retain it for their own use has led to egregious and well-chronicled abuses. And those abuses have, as I mentioned earlier, been documented in investigative reports and were brought to the court's attention in Thames. Second, this victory cast light on a growing and increasingly confident left-right alliance that has united in advancing a libertarian approach to core individual rights. At the Supreme Court, for instance, TIMSS was supported by 19 amicus briefs, representing more than 75 organizations that ran the ideological gamut. And this emerging alliance is pressing the court to correct past decisions that have wrongly facilitated government overreach and impunity, um, typically employing historical and originalist arguments. Along with the movement to curtail exploitive fines, fees, and forfeitures, you can see this alliance in efforts to to, um, scale back qualified immunity, to prevent new technology from being used to undermine Fourth Amendment privacy safeguards, And as we'll be discussing um, later on this panel, to eliminate the dual sovereignty exception to double jeopardy clause. Now, while it remains to be seen how successful all these efforts are, some have been already more successful than others, they're certainly forcing the justices to consider these issues from a new perspective and with a new urgency. And third, while, as I've said, this is, I think, an important development, questions remain. And in fact, this case will help spur, hopefully, um, answers to some of these questions about the scope of the protections provided by the excessive fines clause. In Tim's, the justices didn't decide whether the forfeiture of Tim's vehicle would be excessive. But at least some justices suggest that in their view, the answer to that question wasn't obvious. And so there are lots of questions that remain to be answered about, again, the scope of the protections of the clause. For example, should a person's wealth or income, or lack thereof, bear on whether a fine is excessive? History suggests that the answer is yes. But to date, the Supreme Court has taken no position on the question whether a person's income and wealth are relevant considerations in judging the excessiveness of a fine. So, by spurring on progress of, in this, of the law in this area, the TIMS decision could help speed up such a development. Such advancement of the law is sorely needed given how underdeveloped the standards for Eighth Amendment excessiveness are. And so, that too could be another important consequence of the court's decision in TIMS, one that ultimately leads us to be discussing other new developments involving this old amendment in the years to come. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Brian. Uh, Next we'll be hearing from Anthony Colangelo of the SMU Law School, Dedman School of Law, where he teaches courses on conflict of laws, civil procedure, and public, private, and US foreign relations law. His scholarly work is featured in a variety of academic journals, including the Virginia Law Review, Cornell Law Review, Northwestern Law Review. Before joining the SMU Law staff, he was a research and teaching fellow at Columbia Law School and worked as a litigation associate at the New York City and Rome offices of Cleary Gottlieb. And I also kind of nominate his article as the one that made me think the most new thoughts of all the articles in the review uh, on this sort of vexing case of Gamble v. United States. Anthony?
3: Well,
4: thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, in Gamble versus The United States, the Supreme Court upheld the so-called dual sovereignty doctrine. This doctrine means the traditional prohibition on double jeopardy does not apply when you're being prosecuted by separate sovereigns. The reason is the Constitution only prohibits being prosecuted twice for the same offense. And an offense means an offense prescribed by a particular sovereign's laws. So if there are multiple sovereigns with distinct laws prescribing distinct offenses, you're not being prosecuted twice for the same offense. So the argument goes. So the federal government can prosecute you after you've already been tried in state court and vice versa, or a state can prosecute you after you've already been tried in another state's courts. Or, as I want to focus on my remarks today, one country can prosecute you after you've already been prosecuted for the same crime in another country. Now, the court explicitly addressed this foreign nation prosecution question during oral argument, with some justices asking about someone who commits a crime abroad against the United States but has already been prosecuted abroad. Can we prosecute that person again? And the court took up the question again in its decision in Gamble, noting that the United States may have, and I quote, interests in successively prosecuting where the crime affects US territory or persons. Now, I want to return to this interest language in a minute. Before that, in analyzing the dual sovereignty doctrine, the first thing we need to do is figure out what the court means by a sovereign. In my article for this Cato Supreme Court review, what I set out to do was show that a sovereign really means an entity with prescriptive jurisdiction, jurisdiction to prescribe, a jurisdiction to independently make and apply law or, to put it in the Constitution's language, an independent to prescribe a distinct offense. If that's right, and I think it is based on my reading of the cases, then any exercise of sovereignty, read jurisdiction, must comport with due process. For those unfamiliar with the law in this area, any exercise of jurisdiction in the United States must comply with the due process clauses of the Constitution. The 14th Amendment Due Process Clause regulates state assertions of power, and the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause regulates federal assertions of power. And here is what I argue a new connection linking the Double Jeopardy Clause with the Due Process Clauses. And it just so happens that the test, according to the Supreme Court, on whether a state can constitutionally apply its law under the Due Process Clause comes down to whether that state has contacts creating interests such that the application of its law is neither arbitrary nor fundamentally unfair. Now, we don't know yet from the court what the test is under the Fifth Amendment for the federal government to apply its law abroad, but lower courts have been wrestling with this question since at least the early 90s. My synthetic reading of the lower court cases is that where international law provides a basis of jurisdiction for the United States to prosecute, it comports with due process. And that's, in fact, what Gamble used to evaluate when the US might have an interest in successively prosecuting. Where, for example, the opinion notes a US national is killed abroad, and that foreign, the perpetrator of that act, is prosecuted abroad, the United States might have an interest in successively prosecuting. Or the court talked about the situation where a US national commits a crime abroad, that US national is prosecuted, the United States might have an interest in successively prosecuting. Now, international law contains a number of bases of jurisdiction for states to exercise prescriptive jurisdiction. For example, there are the nationality bases that I just discussed. A state may assert jurisdiction over its nationals abroad. There's the passive personality jurisdiction principle, where a state may assert jurisdiction over perpetrators of crimes against its citizens abroad. There's something called objective territoriality, where if conduct starts in one state but ends in another state, the latter state can assert jurisdiction. There's also something called subjective territoriality, where conduct starts in the state asserting jurisdiction but finishes in another jurisdiction. There's effects, where conduct occurs abroad but has effects on the state's territory. The protective principle, which authorizes a state to assert jurisdiction over activity that threatens its national security or official state functions, think counterfeiting currency. And then there's a really interesting basis of jurisdiction called universal jurisdiction. This basis of jurisdiction holds that any state in the world can prosecute the perpetrators of certain extremely heinous crimes against international law. It started off with piracy, but it expanded after World War II to include things like genocide, torture, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and I've argued certain acts of terrorism. And the idea here is that the state is not asserting its national jurisdiction. It's not projecting its national law abroad, but is acting as the decentralized enforcer of an international law that covers the globe. Now, the further away one gets from these bases of jurisdiction, obviously, the less jurisdiction the United States has, and the less it qualifies as a sovereign for purposes of the dual sovereignty doctrine. If we're also really focused on interests, it may be the case that where the United States, I would say, A, pla- plays an active role in the foreign prosecution, B, the foreign law and sentencing match up, and C, the proceedings are not a sham, US interests are, are vindicated. And so would its sovereignty be as defined by interests perhaps to the point where it's disqualified as a sovereign for purposes of the dual sovereignty doctrine. Let me just end with a piracy example. One of the first cases in our jurisprudence to discuss double jeopardy was a piracy case called United States versus Furlong from 1820. There, the court distinguished murder on the one hand, which was a crime against national law, and piracy on the other hand, which was a crime against international law, subject to universal jurisdiction. Murder, it said, could be prosecuted separately by distinct sovereigns because it was against distinct separate national jurisdictions. Piracy, on the other hand, would be subject to the bar on double jeopardy. And the reason is, on my jurisdictional reading of these cases, is that once the universal jurisdiction prescribing piracy had already been used up by the sole applicable law, that is, international law, the same offense could not be prosecuted twice. The law, international law, had already been extinguished, and therefore the double jeopardy bar applied. I'll just conclude by saying that we are extending our laws abroad in unprecedented and very aggressive ways over things like terrorist offenses, narco-terrorism, drug smuggling, and human rights abuses. International double jeopardy cases exist, and they have seen a large uptick in recent years and the the courts, lower courts, have upheld them on the basis of the dual sovereignty doctrine. But if sovereignty means jurisdiction, and jurisdiction is tied to these established bases in international law, courts have to evaluate whether the US is sovereign for purposes of jurisdiction under the doctrine, which means courts have to engage in this jurisdictional analysis. At least with respect to cases where we claim only to be enforcing international law on the basis of universal jurisdiction, if that law has already been used up, we have no residual basis upon which to apply our law. There is no distinct offense, and we are not a sovereign for purposes of the double jeopardy clause. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Anthony. And we will have Eric Baxter here to talk about the American Legion case. He is the VP and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund. He has represented a religious organization and individuals in a wide array of religious liberty disputes at both the trial and appellate level. Before joining Beckett, he was a partner at Aaron Fox LLP in Washington, DC. He's a graduate of the J. Reuben Clark School, Law School at BYU. And this is nominated for my favorite biographical fact of the day. He and his wife have seven children and an amateur family bluegrass band. Uh, which I'd like your, your the next ten, the last you can do 10 more minutes just on family bluegrass bands. I'm gonna get a little bit Please welcome around.
5: Well thank you, Trevor, and it's a pleasure to be here. I was feeling great until you mentioned the bluegrass band. I'm really the weak link in the band. Uh, my wife and kids needed someone who could play rhythm. So they kind of throw me in there. And we have a performance coming up in a, on the guitar. But um, now I'm thinking about it. I've got to get my guitar out and start rehearsing again. So um, no, I'm really happy to be here today to talk about the American Legion versus uh, American Humanist Association case, um, which was the leading religion case um, in the court last term and arose under the Establishment Clause. It involved a 90-year-old memorial cross that was erected not far from here in Blainsburg, Maryland um, after World War I to honor the residents of the county who had died um, serving our country. For approximately 40 years it had stood on private land, but the development of roads and um, commercial activity in the area in- was creating some problems, and the county decided to take over ownership of the land under the cross and take on the responsibility for up keeping the cross. Uh, so for about the last 50 years, the cross has stood on county land and under county care without a lot of controversy until the American Humanist Association um, brought a lawsuit claiming that many of its members were offended by having to see the cross on public land. Now, the case brought with it high expectations um, from those who watched the religion clauses at the court, largely because of a prior case, Lemon versus Kurtzman, which um, was the court's leading case on interpreting the Establishment Clause. Lemon uh, was notoriously troublesome. Under the Lemon test, uh, the court said, we'll look at, in in deciding whether something on public land or other religious activity in the, in the public square violates the Establishment Clause, we're going to look at what was the government's purpose um, in carrying out the action, what is the effect of that action, and does the action create um, excessive entanglement with religion. Um, those latter two uh, categories were condensed into what was called the Endorsement Test, uh, which asked whether a reasonable person looking at the government action um, would um, think that non-adherents would be made to feel like outsiders or not uh, full members of the political community. This, of course, uh, ranged based on the judge looking at a case. Every judge had his or her own perspective of what was a reasonable perspective on the government action. So um, Justice Thomas, for example, said that you know nativity scenes on county courthouses were okay, except when they're not. Memorial crosses were okay, except when they're not. And in 2005, the court, um, on the same day, issued two opinions about uh, Ten Commandments monument, Ten Commandment monuments. Uh, in one case, out of McCreary County, Kentucky, holding that the monument was unconstitutional in a five-to-four vote. And the same day, a case rising out of Texas, a, a monument at the Texas State um, Courthouse that it was constitutional in a five to four vote. So Justice Breyer won both cases, and all the other justices, uh, each won one and lost one. Um, Scalia famously referred to the Lemon Test as um, a a ghoul from a late night horror movie that um, has been stabbed a hundred times by various justices and put to rest, but then called back from the dead when it's convenient in a particular case. the, the Establishment Clause jurisprudence on this was just a mess throughout the country, and judges were complaining consistently about it in their opinions on these cases, not knowing how to move forward. Scholars had uniformly criticized the case, and many of the justices had also recognized that it was problematic. So, uh, the case this case came to the court with expectations that the court would clear up the lemon. Uh, jurisprudence and do something to give clear guidance about what really violates the Establishment Clause and what doesn't. The court in many ways, but not all, met these expectations. First, a supermajority of the court with seven justices upheld the cross um, holding that it did not violate the Establishment Clause. Uh, The opinion that was written by Justice Alito joined by Justices Robert, um, Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, and Justice Kavanaugh, um, and uh, held that the, the, the cross did not violate the Establishment Clause. The court didn't give a real clear or didn't give a rule that would cover all Establishment Clause cases. In fact, it said one of the problems with the Lemon test was it tried to provide a grand unifying theory of all things Establishment Clause when really there are complex and varying areas of the law that need different tests. But at minimum, they held that uh, retaining established um, religiously expressive monuments, symbols and practices, that for those established, religiously expressive monuments, symbols and practices, there was a, a presumption of constitutionality. Only Ginsburg and only Justices Ginsburg and, and Sotomayor dissented from uh, this basic holding. So the first question that comes from this decision is, is Lemon really dead? Or is it just back in the grave for the time? I think that the answer is yes, that Lemon has finally been put to rest. Of those in the majority opinion, only Justice Kagan withheld her vote from the portions uh, criticizing Lemon. The majority opinion didn't say Lemon is overruled, but it went to great lengths to talk about the problems with Lemon and how its expectations were not met, and that its shortcomings created um, significant problems for the Establishment Clause jurisprudence. Justice Kagan withheld her vote from those portions of the opinion, saying that she thought that that test still had much value. Um, And so she joins Justices uh, Sotomayor and Ginsburg in still rooting for Lemon to be revived. Justice Breyer said that there should be no single formula, but joined the opinion that Lemon would not apply in the case of religiously expressive monuments, symbols and practices. Three of the justices um, argued that Lemon is officially dead. Gorsuch said that Lemon is now shelved. Justice Thomas said that Lemon is not good law. Um, and although the majority has rejected it in this context, it should in all contexts. And Justice Kavanaugh did a careful analysis of five different areas of the Establishment Clause, uh, five different types of cases, and said that lemon is not good in any of these five categories. So I think there is a reasonable expectation that lemon is dead and that lower courts will be hesitant to invoke lemon, certainly in the context of religiously expressive uh, monument symbols and practices, but I think also in other areas of of the Establishment Clause where prior Supreme Court cases already frequently ignored the test in any case. The next question is, what now will take the place of lemon? What is a presumption of constitutionality in the cases of uh, religiously expressive monuments, symbols, and practices? And how will that be interpreted by the lower courts? The court identified four reasons why there should be a presumption of constitutionality. It said... The government's purpose in, in you know, putting up a monument or engaging in other, religious, uh, other activity that invokes religion, the purpose is very difficult to ascertain, especially after the passage of decades. Um, it's hard to know exactly what the actors were thinking when they erected a cross or did something else that invoked religion in the public square. Also, those purposes multiply over time. It may have been that the original purpose was to celebrate a religious event or to acknowledge religion in the lives of of an individual. But over time, those actions, those monument symbols, practices, they take on both historical and cultural meaning. And so do you judge the original um, purpose of the government actor, or do you look at what is the purpose now and how is it understood broadly? Those purposes also change over time, and the court invoked the example of the Statue of Liberty, which initially stood as a reminder of of freedom and our friendship with uh, the country of France, but has evolved over time to take on a meaning of a beacon welcoming immigrants into our society. And fourth, the court noted that removal of these established um, monument symbols, and practices would be perceived by many Americans as aggressively hostile and divisive. Um, the, one of the judges on the Fourth Circuit that originally struck down the cross suggested that uh, the two arms just be broken off and that the monument be allowed to remain standing uh, as, as a tall rectangle with, you know, with bruised shoulders. Um, and the court noted that that, you know, it just didn't make sense, right? There's, there's a common sense feeling of uh, you can chop off the arms of the, of the cross and people are still going to know what it was and what it meant. And that would just be offensive uh, to most people. But those four factors, these were reasons why, the court, why there should be a presumption, not factors for overcoming the presumption. So the court established that there is a presumption of constitutionality for those reasons. So now the question is, well, what would you have to show to overcome that presumption? And the court didn't give a clear um, answer, but suggested that you would have to show that there was discriminatory intent or an effort to deliberately disrespect other religions, or people who are not religious. And so that should be a high standard. The Third Circuit has already issued an opinion involving a cross on their county seal, which the I, I litigated this case in the Third Circuit. The county seal and flag have 13 different symbols of things that are important to the county. So there are um, stacks, uh, smoke stacks from a cement factory. There's a bison head. There's books. Uh, that were put there to uh, symbolize the importance of education. Um, There's an image of the county courthouse. And there's also a cross that was included to recall the early settlers of um, Lehigh County who were mostly uh, religious dissidents from Europe who were coming seeking religious freedom. The Freedom From Religion Foundation sued um, to have the cross removed from the flag and seal. And the court heard arguments before the American Legion case and then held the case. Once the American Legion decision came down, the court very quickly said, okay, Lehigh or uh, Lemon does not apply in this context. And, they're, uh, and then they adopted this discriminatory intent or deliberate effort uh, to disrespect as the, as the factors for overcoming the presumption of constitutionality. And found that that would be a high standard that was not met in that case because the county had clearly kept the, the seal or the cross on the seal for reasons of historical and cultural significance. So I think this is a, you know, the court has created a high standard um, that should put to rest most of these cases about uh, public, uh, religiously expressive practices, symbols, and monuments in the public square. Then the question arises, what happens in other cases that don't involve necessarily um, symbols or monuments on county courthouses and, uh, and so forth? And the court, again, didn't really give a clear answer, but referred back to the Town of Greece case, which was a legislative prayer case. Is it appropriate for a, a county council or a state legislature to invite prayer into the, their meetings? Um, uh, as an invocation for their proceedings, in Town of Greece, the court upheld, said that the establishment. Whenever we are looking at the establishment clause, we must. It must be understood by reference to historical practices and understandings. And so, the court uh, looked, for example, at the fact that just days after the language of the First Amendment and the establishment clause was approved by the First Congress, they all Congress also approved uh, paid chaplaincy. And so, the court said. If the if the founders who wrote those who wrote the First Amendment didn't think that having religious invocations for their their legislative sessions was a violation of the Establishment Clause, then that's a pretty strong indication that it doesn't violate the Establishment Clause today either. Um, and so the court made in Town of Greece made a strong uh, suggestion that in all Establishment Clause cases we would look to history. Um, to un- historical practices and understanding to interpret the scope and meaning of the Establishment Clause. Uh, we at Beckett joined an amicus brief with Michael McConnell to argue that there were spe- historically there were specific understandings of what it meant to have an establishment. That was to officially establish a church by a legislative act, to compel attendance, to punish people who attended descending churches, to impose taxes specifically for religious um, Organize to benefit religious organizations, and that if if a practice today didn't fall within those historical understandings of an establishment, that there is no violation of the establishment clause. So the court didn't go that uh, quite that far, but did suggest that it would be looking to history uh, to under to better understand the scope of the establishment clause. Justice Breyer, um, the court wasn't. Um, This is where there was a little bit of division with the court, but I think uh, still ended with a clear indication that this is where the court is headed. Justice Breyer joined that position of the opinion but said, it's not my understanding that we've officially adopted a history and uh, tradition test in all contexts. Justice Kagan said, perhaps out of an excessive caution, I'm not going to join that that portion of the opinion. But I, too, look to history. And I think that the court's uh, discussion of history was appropriately sensitive and insightful. Justice Kavanaugh said, no, we've definitely adopted a history and tradition test in this opinion. Um, And Justice Thomas didn't directly um, address history, but um, those of you who are familiar with Justice Thomas's interpretation of the Establishment Clause, he takes a very historical approach where he says, I'm not sure we ever should have incorporated the Establishment Clause again. So there's not just a, a few things left that haven't been incorporated, but there's some, just, at least one justice who would like to undo some of those incorporations. So um, I think that that suggests that he definitely wants to look at history. He just even has a more extreme view of what the history means um, in these cases. So I think with the combination of the court's recent decision in town of Greece and the, uh, the plurality opinion in American Legion, along with the concurring opinions, suggest that the court will be looking more and more at history to interpret the scope of the Establishment Clause rather than trying to look at purpose or effects of government action. Just in closing, uh, I think a couple of justices made additional points that I think are important to remember. Justice Gorsuch's concurrence focused on whether the uh, plaintiffs in the original proceeding had standing. Um, should we allow standing, for example, just because someone feels um, hurt or offended? And it's sometimes fun reading these complaints as they come in because different jurisdictions around the country have have slightly tweaked these standards of like, well, you have to say more than that you run into the monument or offended. You have to be someone who lives near it and is forced to go by it or um, you have to have some kind of physical reaction. So sometimes you get, you know, my, one of my favorites in the Lehigh County was Case was Freedom from Religion Foundation plaintiffs saying that they felt dyspeptic after seeing um, the cross on the seal. So Justice Gorsuch really took, uh, you know, attacked this line of. of standing which you know when do when does someone have the right to bring a lawsuit and said in no other context do we allow people to sue just because they feel offended or they disagree with government action and he noted for example that in equal protection cases the court has held that it is not enough for example for someone a racial minority to feel offended by what the government does there has to be an actual discriminatory effect on them Noting, for example, that no one can sue, you know, an African-American could could not sue over the fact that there are Confederate symbols in some state flags. And yet, under the Establishment Clause, courts are allowing, um, you know, people who are not religious to sue over the fact that they're offended by a religious symbol on the flag. And that that um, kind of uh, discrepancy is harmful both to Americans' understandings of how they are treated in society, but also to uh, you know a, a uniform and consistent understanding of the law. Um, so that's an important issue that's still out there. None of the other justices really, Justice uh, Thomas joined that opinion, but the other justices seem willing to kind of move on without addressing that point. But I think it's something that we will see uh, just because it's still playing out in the lower courts. And finally, for those who are who despair at the decision, Justice Kavanaugh provided some words of comfort, reminding us that we are all citizens and we are all all citizens are equally American, uh, regardless of our religious beliefs or whether we have a relig- any religious beliefs at all. And then also reminded that the Constitution is not the only guardian of our rights; that the Constitution sets a floor, protecting our most basic and inalienable rights, those rights that go to the core of um, who we are and how we uh, pursue our own understanding of the good and of freedom and of God. Um, and the Constitution was not intended to, uh, to heal every um, slight injury or every boo-boo. It's not uh, your mother who's there to make sure you never feel bad about yourself. But he says there are other uh, ways to protect these rights there are state constitutions that sometimes have higher protections state legislatures uh, city councils can still take action for example To vote to remove offensive or or no longer relevant or unwanted uh, Monuments and symbols from the public square and so the Constitution I think that really sums up one of the best uh, Results of this decision that we're no longer looking to the Supreme Court and the Constitution to to resolve these cultural, social, and political conflicts, but rather returning power to state and local governments um, to address these issues through the democratic process. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Eric. I thought dyspeptic was something only D- like Dickens characters felt, uh, <clears throat> but apparently some litigants. I also, every time I passed the Bladensburg cross, I thought it was a lowercase t for time to honor the World War I dead. Is, didn't everyone else interpret it that way?
5: Everybody I reads mean. their own thing. That <laughs> exactly. <about it. laughs>
1: um, now, uh, we actually have a good amount of time for questions. But before I open up to the audience, I wanted to see if anyone had a comment on anyone else's. So maybe Brandon on Gamble or do you want to comment on anyone else's remarks.
2: Well, I think one of the things that's interesting, a thread through all of the cases, and that's a theme of the court now, and we'll see in the coming term as well, is how the justices are wrestling with precedent, with stereo decisis. It was obviously, um, as you know, we we're just hearing about a big theme in American Legion, what to do with this Lemon case, and different justices had different takes on it. Um, you know, in Gamble, a big theme of the court's opinion um, was that, you know, they had this—this this had been the rule for 100-some years, and they can't lightly disregard precedent. Justice Thomas disagreed with that uh, last piece. He thinks you can fairly readily uh, disregard precedent. Um, but I think when the justices are thinking about these questions in all of these cases— there are obviously larger issues that involve precedent that the court is thinking about as well and that we're going to be seeing in the terms to come. And so kind of thinking about how the court is viewing these old amendments and the changes that it might be thinking about making um, against the backdrop of precedent is something um, that we saw last term and are going to continue to see.
1: And it's moderator's privilege. Anthony, what are you uh, thinking about the Gorsuch dissent in Gamble? Uh, did you have any remarks or comments on that? Um, Hold that microphone.
4: Not really so much. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that he relied a lot on was secondary sources, um, which, uh, you know, were not that, to my mind, just were not that persuasive. Um, He just took a different view of what the founding history was. Um, You know, my, my sort of the thing that cemented it for me around that time period were the 1820 decisions that I talked about in the case, where this idea was clearly around. I mean, clearly Justice William Johnson thought about dual sovereignty; it existed. Um, Gorsuch didn't have he didn't have cases to support his position, and so, you know, I thought he's a very eloquent writer, and he did a very good job with them. But at the end of the day, it just it wasn't persuasive to me.
1: And also, in that case, the, the fascinating thing for Gamble was they took they took so four votes for cert. They take the case on should the dual sovereignty exception be overruled, and then it's seven to two, which implies they lost two justices and, and I would predict one of them was actually Thomas. Yeah. And I bet he was actually surprised. That he was convinced, the, uh, and Sotomayor possibly too. No, I mean we,
2: Thomas. We know because he had been on record calling yeah. with Justice Ginsburg for the court to reconsider this issue. So, you know, I certainly thought. I think a lot of court watchers thought. Well, that's at least two votes to overrule it. And you know, he acknowledged at the beginning of his opinion that he had had skepticism, and at the end of the day, he wasn't convinced. Which I guess is a good reminder that you can't always be counting votes based on cert, votes to grant cert. Because sometimes things do happen during the briefing and argument that changes people's minds.
1: Judges are judges, and they can be convinced, yeah. good, which helps. Um, I'm going to open up for. Question. So the you guys seem to be bringing down the microphones up there. Um, uh, on, on that question, that that that's the same way I felt reading Anthony's uh, articles. That this, even if you overrule the dual sovereignty exception, you'd have to. You could come up with something to replace it. Which, if, in some instances, a classic example, perhaps being, uh, imagine in the Jim Crow tying its brands so the Jim Crow South. If say a federal post inspector. Uh, is lynched and he gets a kangaroo court trial in state court and then exonerated and the feds prosecute because he's a postal inspector and the states prosecute because they're pretending to do justice in that situation you, you might want to something like a dual sovereignty exception.
4: Yeah well there's also the I mean there's also the Blockburger test so yeah. you can be prosecuted for separate offenses so long as the elements aren't the same and so one you know one way around this problem would be you have separate offenses that you know, separate offenses that don't have the same elements. But, I mean, you're still going to get in. You're still going to get into the dual sovereignty problem. And I think, you know, just from my reading of the oral argument and from my reading, the, the court didn't need to go off on this tangent, and it really did. In terms of the international cases, it was clearly bothering the justices. It was bothering them at oral argument. And I think the case would not have been such a big deal um, had it not been for those international implications. Because what if, you know, we're talking, we're extending our laws abroad in these really aggressive ways over terrorism and narco terrorism and drug trafficking and things like that. If we have this, if we get rid of the dual sovereignty doctrine and another country prosecutes and there's a light sentence or a slap on the hand or an acquittal, our hands are tied, you know. That that can't be the rule, and I think that that really influenced the justices quite a bit.
1: Uh, questions uh, there in the back, uh, uh, back there, For, on the first outside row, and then I get to the inside row next. Uh,
3: Jim Duhon, unaffiliated. It seems to me that uh, justices Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch's uh, standing uh, position uh, on the establishment clause raises the broader issue of whether the, and and I don't know what Justice Thomas's uh, reasoning on this is, but it does raise the broader issue of whether the incorporation doctrine should apply to the um, establishment clause. No individual is deprived of life, liberty, or property as required by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And at a a, uh, a break in a uh, class conducted by uh, Larry Tribe, I posed this question to him, and he said there is no rational basis to incorporate the Establishment Clause. So I guess I ad- address this question to uh, Mr. Baxter. Uh, should the fund make a frontal attack on the establishment clause and just argue that that uh, it simply should not be incorporated?
5: Well, that's certainly the view of of Justice Thomas, and I think he does a nice job in this opinion. Some of his prior um, opinions discussing this are a little more strident, and here he's very thoughtfully saying, "Look, we really should at least." Look at the history, including the history of the Fourteenth Amendment and figure out if there are any um rights that in here you know to citizens of the United states and the, and the and the separate states to see if there's an argument for incorporation. so he's really calling for, hey, we should at least discuss this and look at this. I just think it's very unlikely at this point that the court would backtrack I mean no other justice has ever given a nod to Justice Thomas that they're, you know, they're sympathetic to his argument and so I, uh, I don't think that it's likely to go anywhere. So as far as like an actual litigation tactic, it, it probably won't serve clients very well and so it's just not likely to be raised
6: often. And
1: next I have a uh, follow-up. Hi,
6: Bob Fitzpatrick. Uh, a question to Ms. Garrod. Um Justice Thomas's Concurrence and privilege and immunities in the incorporation case. Where do you think his thinking is going when he uh, dissents concurs on that basis in terms of, I guess, the slaughterhouse cases, substantive due process, natural rights. What's his thinking, why he interjects privilege and immunities rather than due process?
2: I mean, he's been consistent in pushing for a number of years now that he thinks the proper method of incorporation is privileges or immunities. And there's certainly something to that. Um, You know, in the McDonald case where the court incorporated the Second Amendment, you know, there too, he argued that privileges or immunities was the proper path. And that's something he picked up uh, and quoted, you know, extensively from his McDonald opinion and his opinion in this case. You know, I think in this area, as in, you know, the a corporation established a Clause and in lots of other areas. You know, Justice Thomas um, has his own views of what the history of the Constitution requires and he's willing to adhere to those, whether he has others joining him or not. And I think what was actually, um, in some ways, a little more interesting was seeing Justice Gorsuch's concurrence. You know, he acknowledged, as I said, that privileges or immunities might be the better um, or more appropriate path for incorporation, um, but kind of surprisingly, I think, you know, decided, oh, we don't need to do it in this case, um, which I think, you know, raises the question whether it's going to be possible for Justice Thomas to find others to join him, um, you know, as he continues to to call for a, re, a larger rethinking of how we think about incorporation. And also,
1: Justice Kavanaugh's yeah. not joining that uh, was a, for people who read the tea leaves of originalism and the divisions yeah. between the, the the Republican appointed justices. Uh, the, that's a significant move uh, here in the front. Uh,
7: my name is William Hagan. I'm un, unaffiliated. Uh, I, I guess uh, it's kind of a religious and uh, excessive fines question. The, uh, getting back to the Colorado Baker's case, which I know isn't relevant here f- f- in terms of a symbol. Um, in that case, I believe the, uh, the fine was something like $150,000, if I'm not mistaken. And even if the, uh, the person you know, was ultimately found to have violated someone's uh, you know, rights and that they weren't protected, Religiously uh, under the religious freedom, would, the, would a fine like that be something that you think would be overturned as being excessive because it could conceivably just put any small business out of business even if they did you know weren't protected by the First Amendment.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, the focus of the court and masterpiece was on the question of whether, you know, there was an issue or whether they had to comply with the Colorado public accommodations law. And so I, I know less of the details about the details of the fine. Um, but I do think, you know, one significant potential consequence of TIMS is that we're going to see, and of the work that IJ and, and other groups have been doing, is we're going to see much more development of case law around what is an excessive fine, um, what are the scope of the excessive fines clauses, protections, both what does it cover, and then how do we decide what's excessive? And so I think we will see you know, this uh, being an area that is developed across a number of different contexts where we hadn't really seen these issues raised in the past. Uh,
1: in the back there. Come on, right side. <laughs> left, left side It's totally dropping you here.
8: Hi there. Uh, Nathan Welch, unaffiliated. Um, in regards to the double jeopardy, um, isn't much of the the work of the double jeopardy even had it gone the other way um effectively it it would have been a nullity anyways because of the the ability to differentiate based off of very i guess minor element differences uh right you tack on a jurisdictional hook for a federal level Mm -hmm. right The firearm cross state lines, which gets you the jurisdiction, but it also it's another element. Therefore, all right, we've got a different crime. I know in Virginia, you steal a wallet. Okay, well if that wallet has credit cards, uh, that's that's a separate charge, right? So if you steal a wallet that doesn't, or it does, uh, the same act, same you know fluid motion, same uh, motivation. Uh, However, you know if you if you got somebody who wants to, you can tack on, I'd say, four or five different charges, uh, if you know the law, uh, as passed by the statute. So, effectively, I know it, it's the big, shiny case. Uh, would it have actually had much effect had it come out the other way?
4: Um, yeah, no, that's a great question, and I think that goes to my response to Trevor, which is that you have this sort of fallback where, you know, I mean, I think I think Blockburger is a little bit more stringent than you're suggesting, um, but I um, but certainly, you can come up with different offenses to get at the same conduct, and the court's been very clear that as long as you have different offenses, you can prosecute twice um, so i you know i guess i agree, I agree with you on that um, One of the interesting things about the and i 'll just say about the international double jeopardy cases is that if we were to and we, we do pursue these prosecutions, these what I 've called universal jurisdiction prosecutions, where somebody commits material terrorism to support uh, material support to terrorism or genocide or piracy or something like that, the only basis of our jurisdiction to prosecute is that the crime is an international crime and it's prescribed under international law that's the only thing that gives us the jurisdiction to prosecute and it's those elements of the crime under international law and other countries also prescribe the crime the same way because it's their basis of jurisdiction to prosecute. So actually there, Blockburger wouldn't work. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't have that two distinct offenses, and there would be this bar to double jeopardy. Uh, you know, what the ramifications of that are for world uh, prosecution of, of, of serious international criminals, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, good question.
1: And I think it's a bit... I think Justice Thomas had the footnote to... Just Title 18 of the U.S. Code, and if you agree with him and, and Cato too, uh, m- the real problem here is a-, a crazy theory of federal jurisdiction over things that should never—it ha- should never be federally legal to smoke marijuana in your basement in Colorado, just Colorado because that's where I'm from, but it could be all the other states. But it should, should, that's the real problem. Um, did you have a question, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll wait for the mic, please. Actually, well, uh, one sec. We have a mic here. Well, we have, an online, we have an online audience, so.
3: Okay, if everybody can hear me. Uh, first of all, a comment to Mr. Baxter. I'm a former resident of the town of Bladensburg, Maryland. Probably the only one in the room that ever actually lived there. Uh, went by that cross any number of times, and I was waiting for somebody to call me in as an expert witness about how I'd be so emotionally impacted if the cross was removed. Uh, and uh, so I thought uh, if it was remanded, you could have called me in, but you won't have to do that. Okay, on the double jeopardy issue, Uh, It seems to me what the court said was you could be tried 51 times for the exact same crime, and I didn't see any opinion how that that was ever addressed, you know, uh, and it would seem to be if you're going to be tried 51 times, uh, that on its face would be cruel and unusual punishment just to be tried that many times. Was that issue, how did the court handle that?
4: That issue was actually handled, um, it was raised in a case called Heath versus Alabama, so Heath was prosecuted in Heath was prosecuted for a crime in which his wife was kidnapped in Alabama and then murdered in Georgia. So your fifty-one times thing comes in because it's interstate, right? Um, so uh, Heath pled guilty in Alabama to avoid, pled guilty, sorry, in Georgia to avoid the death penalty, and then was re-prosecuted in Alabama and sentenced to death. And Keith's Uh, Heath's counsel argued precisely your point if this is the case then he can just you know as long as and here would be my limitation right on this would be and I you know would be my limitation there's got to be a jurisdictional connection to the crime so unless your crime touches all 51 jurisdictions there's not going to be sovereignty to prosecute you but certainly you could imagine you know poisoning somebody, them traveling on a train across country suffering the ill effects, each state would have some jurisdiction over that crime, that person could be successively prosecuted that that number of times across those particular states, and I don't think there's anything in the opinion that would discount that, as long as there is jurisdiction, and that would be my own limitation on it.
1: That sounds like the worst civ pro-hypo ever
3: written. <laughs> <laughs> a widely distributed stock It's going to all 50 states would have sold it, and it was fraudulently uh, mm-hmm. uh, that done. That would raise an, a cause
1: of action in each state under each state law. No yeah, yeah. Uh, John Vecchioti in the back there, uh, She in the very back.
8: John Vecchioni, cause of action. Uh, I'd also like to just add, there's also the Indian nations also have jurisdiction. It could be even more than that. Um, but the, my question has to do with um, extradition. Um, in foreign states, uh, you can't extradite someone unless it's a crime in that state as well. In the, in the area of international um, crimes like piracy, is it a defense under this decision or, or by the precedent of the court, that you have a double jeopardy claim or do you get extradited and then have to uh, pro- to go through it?
4: So <clears throat> the answer is it depends. Uh, it depends largely on the extradition treaty uh, at issue. Um, there is a double jeopardy defense built into some extradition treaties. It's not uniform. There's a model treaty on extradition that we follow a lot and that model treaty on extradition has an extradition offend, uh, double jeopardy offense. But what's interesting is the, um, the exception to, to the extradition, you would, the argument you would make, is I've already been tried, I'm, I can't be tried in this other state, but there's no prohibition on being tried in a third state. So you could actually be extradited to one state, and that state could extradite you to another state, and then you could be tried there because there is no, and I will say this with absolute certainty, there is no blanket international rule against double jeopardy. So in all other countries, I mean, there are some other countries that have double jeopardy prohibitions internationally, but as a matter of pure public international law, there's no double jeopardy bar on successive prosecutions. Extradition treaties carve out an exception. It's a limited exception in that respect.
1: Uh, Devin here on the left. Devin Watkins from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, My question relates to those parts of the Bill of Rights which have not been incorporated. Uh, The Third Amendment hasn't yet been incorporated. (laughs) Obviously, there's not very many cases of the Third Amendment, which is why I suspect it hasn't been. Uh, But the explicit non-incorporation of the grand jury clause. and that, if it can't be incorporated under the Due Process Clause, do you think that would be one of the only provisions, maybe, that the Privileges and Immunities Clause could be applied into?
2: Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, as you know, you indicated and I said, there's not a lot of these left. I think you're right. We're probably not going to see a Third Amendment case at the court anytime soon. But I think that's one of the few that you could see coming up to the court. And actually, this coming term, the court is going to be hearing a case um, called Ramos v. Louisiana about whether the jury unanimity requirement um, is applicable against the states. And so it does seem like the court is, you know, trying to clean up these last few issues so we can have kind of clarity on the full scope of incorporation in which amendments are, are incorporated.
1: We'll be discussing the Ramos case in the in the last panel, which is an extremely fascinating yeah. case. And it's kind of like the Blaine Amendment case coming up. Where why did Louisiana? Why does Louisiana not have a unanimity requirement? Uh, racism. That's, yeah. that's that's often the answer in uh, many of these answers. So, uh, any other questions uh, here. <clears throat>
6: it's somewhat. Tangential because you mentioned the standing issue in relation to Confederate monuments. Virginia right now seems to be where there's going to be an awful amount of litigation involving conflict between the state law protecting them and the cities wanting to get rid of them. We just had last week filed in federal court in in Norfolk, in the Eastern District of Virginia, and I presume it'll wind its way up. The City of Norfolk indicates that this the state's statute uh, protecting them violates their right to free speech to change the statutes. Also says that it violates their right to alienate property that they own by forcing it to be there. I guess a city, if they own it, has standing, but these seem to be very interesting arguments to try and get rid of something that the General Assembly has said you have to keep there. And I presume at some point, somebody might be <coughs> running briefs of uh, uh, amicus on that issue because it's, it's going up.
5: Yeah, I do think that this issue will continue to come up in various contexts into the earlier gentleman's comment. I mean, the courts already said um, it would be hot. You know, people could reasonably perceive government hostility from the removal of these of these landmarks. So you could have, you know, the American Humanist Association sues and wins to have the cross taken down and then someone's offended because they experienced government hostility from it being taken down and so they were made to feel like a government outsider so they sued to put it back up i <laughs> mean it's like where where does this end so those some of those unusual circumstances may give the opportunity for the court to clear it up i mean it's already ha- there is already a supreme court case in the establishment clause context that says you don't get uh, standing based on just a stigmatic injury or the sense of offense but the lower courts have basically ignored it and so you know, there's still opportunity, I think, for uh, some of these things to come to the court again.
1: Did I I see one back there? Yeah, back there on the left.
6: Thank you. David Schneier, Thomas Jefferson Institute. I want to pursue this 51 case or 57 case issue one more time. Uh, In the context of... uh, oxy cotton
1: we're looking at uh every state having some means of pursuing purdue pharma and uh, they, apparently some states have settled some have not how do you see uh settlement or address of these kinds of st- uh, national uh, uh attorneys general uh, efforts which are becoming more common
4: in terms of settlement.
1: Sort of dual Both software. settlement and, and litigation strategy.
4: And litigation strategy. I mean, um, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that probably it would it would factor into settlement and litigation strategy. Uh, I don't really have I don't really have a good answer to that question.
1: Some of them are criminal. Some of them are civil litigation. So it's. Uh, complex, most of them are ignoring pain patients yes, Michael so yeah you'd uh, add wrong panel <laughs> another panel so uh, here in front
8: uh, again about double jeopardy, how much is the problem of universal jurisdiction largely theoretical? It's my understanding the u s will find some strange, er, strained or uh, strained jurisdictional or co- er, uh, tool to tie it to the U.S. like the FCPA having or only applying to businesses that go through the stream of commerce or drug or narco-terrorism for narcotics that might reach the U.S. soil and Mm -hmm. for uh, terrorism designations you have to be designated by the State Department which gets a U.S. hook like how much is the sui generis crime against all mankind thing more or largely fear or theoretical.
4: Well, I mean, a couple of answers to that question. It's 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 certainly not theoretical in terms of our statutory law. So we have a whole host of statutes on the book that provide for universal jurisdiction that actually are part of treaties to which to which we are party that mandate if we get physical custody of the accused, we must prosecute or extradite. Now, often we'll extradite, um, but we have an international legal obligation to prosecute the perpetrator of that crime. Um, To your sort of even even more practical point, we do exercise universal jurisdiction. We've done it. Uh, We've done it over piracy. We've done it over certain acts of terrorism. There are cases, and um, we're seeing these prosecutions more and more, um, particularly over piracy and acts of terrorism.
1: you exhaust all the questions in the audience? I have one one last for Brianna, actually, because we can break a little bit early, uh, about five minutes. how do you see the excessive fines mixed with the civil forfeiture question going forward? Because arguably an original uh, sense of the excessive fines clause may not have included such forfeitures. Uh, if They were often like ships in the yeah. 19th century. So do you see that, how do you see that working out?
2: I mean, my sense is that the court, um, and there was a little bit of a taste of that in the argument, some question about whether this you know, should even apply here, and the court didn't have much appetite for revisiting that question. I mean, I think there is um, so much uh, right Uh, concern about the abuses that we're seeing in the civil forfeiture context, that um, the odds that lower courts or certainly the Supreme Court are going to go back and try to say that the excessive fines clause does not apply in the civil forfeiture context, I just think is unlikely. I think what we're going to see instead is probably lots of challenges and development of the scope of the excessive fines clause, you know, in the context of civil forfeiture claims. That'd be my guess.
1: All right. If there are no further questions, I'm out of questions, too. So Uh, we can break a little bit early uh, for lunch, which will be upstairs in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is up the spiral staircase. There are bathrooms on the way. and We will be back here promptly at 1 for the next panel. Please join me in thanking our panel.